What a Woman, conversations with powerful women who share powerful stories. This podcast was created by me, your host, Caroline Lyons, and my friend and producer, Sarah Benner, two mums searching for inspiration. And we hope you'll be inspired too. We're thrilled. This series is sponsored by Serenity Spa in the Rose Hotel Tralee and they are offering Water Woman listeners 10% off the Elemis Biotech Pro Glow Plus facial treatments. So book yours now and quote Water Woman podcast to enjoy this exclusive offer. Welcome to the podcast, Nicola Talent. I can't believe I'm saying the words. Do you feel like you've been hunted down by a stalker? No, I actually said, have you ever had a stalker from Kerry's before? No, actually, there's always a first. <laughs> but we're absolutely thrilled. I mean, when we set up What a Woman, I said to Caroline, there was a few names and I said, we got to get Nicola oh, Talent. <laughs> you are the oh, leading organised crime journalist <laughs> in the country. Uh, you are and investigative editor for the Sunday World. Mm. You have a hit podcast which we love, Crime Good. World. Absolutely yeah. love that. Yeah. Um, and you've uh, written, obviously, written some very successful books. The latest one we have here with us, which you're going to get signed, which is the Cocaine Cowboys, the Deadly Rise of Ireland's Drug Lords. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think with Christmas coming up, this is going to be a great book for, for listeners to be Well, I hope buying. it's a good, there's a lot of information in it because it was all in my head for about 20 years and it's all come out into that. So hopefully there's, it's inter- entertaining enough. It sort of meanders a bit, I think. But but I think it's great. It helps piece together, the, I suppose, the, the bigger picture. But mm. ultimately, I mean, you know, some people might think, oh, you know, drug lord, that's, that's, that's a million miles away from my life. But yeah. As you've been saying, you know, cocaine's now in every corner mm. of the country. And actually what kind of was almost, uh, I was almost scared me a little bit, was reading also that it's not just that, but it's the, the ramifications of that, for it, the threat to the sort of our, our judicial systems yes. and how it's, it's, it's seeping into, into everything. Absolutely, and yeah. That is, that is the, the other side of it that I thought was And striking. like, if you look at what happened in Drogheda, okay, and that could be any town, in any county in this country. And what happens is one drug gang have a bit of a row because they both want control of the turf. It starts with a little bit of street fighting and it ends up in a 17-year-old child being kidnapped, dismembered and his body parts left around Dublin. And like even over the course of my career, that would have been absolutely, I would have you know, thought that that was just possible to happen in Mexico. So we are hurtling very quickly into this sort of new world order. Um, the entire structures of organised crime have changed. The money, the wealth that's there has changed. The speed in which a street dealer can become a millionaire is phenomenal. And unfortunately, it's the demand that is fueling it all. And it's the people buying the cocaine and mostly for entertainment purposes that's fueling it all. And you have these very powerful people who have no compunction but to buy police, judiciary, port workers, you name it. And that's corruption. And and that's, that, and that's really what's going to be. And filtering out. into sport. You oh, know, oh, yeah. wow. so you have all of this going on and we're kind of blindly kind of walking headlong into this blizzard without really considering what's actually going on here and change happens so quick in the background you know so that's really what it is and I suppose in the book I tried to 
started where it all started, which was on our coastline, mm. where it starts sort of coming in in bales. A couple of big dealers come a cropper with our weather and our our stormy seas, and they have to pitch up into ports, um, Kerry, Cork, etc. More recently, Waterford and off the Wexford coast, there was a, a ship caught with yeah. uh, two ton of cocaine on it. So that's where it starts. But I suppose it also arrived at a time we were sort of, you know, we were shaking off a lot of years of decade of unemployment. We were becoming wealthier. Young people were getting jobs. They had more expendable disposable income. So it was a perfect storm. Mm, yeah. And yeah, we're where we are. And I was sort of preparing for today and looking into, you know, other models like in Portugal where they decriminalised um, drugs. But then I was reading that actually here in Ireland that there's reasons why that might not work, but partly it's because of that there's more of a violent, um, I suppose, culture. Uh, culture. Mm. And you mentioned the Drogheda. I mean, so it's not necessarily going to resolve things to go down that route because what do you what do well, you like that? the legalizing is they're all different drugs you know so cannabis will probably be legalized in our lifetimes i imagine we've traveled to places where it is legalized where you can go into a shop and pick mm-hmm. what you want have your jellies have whatever you want um the cocaine i don't believe it to be legalized anywhere it's parts of the possession is decriminalized in places like portugal that just means it clears up the court system for smaller kind of users rather than anything else. Cocaine is a class A drug. It's created and controlled by Mexican and Colombian cartels, very murderous cartels. How do we legalize that product? Um, big problem at the moment is crack cocaine. Are we going to legalize it? Uh, and how do we do that? Um, also, the black market and the drug market is so embedded that they're not going to go away. They'll just synthesize something cheaper, uh, you know, something stronger and they'll go out to the black market and sell it. So, yeah, it's a scary mm. world now, is it, isn't it? Mm. Do you ever get just one of the, it's a war we can't win? What? Well, we're certainly not going to win it. There's going to be no winners. There's plenty of losers, but there's going to be no winners in it. Um, I think we just have to keep doing what we're doing uh, from a policing point of view. But I think, you know, the only thing we can probably do is try and tackle the demand issue. Because if you could cut off their money, you know, if you could reduce the demand, you'll reduce the supply. That's the way it is. And with cocaine, the demand is there during the week with the polydrug users who'll take anything, the crack cocaine users, etc., who are addicted, have health issues. But cocaine at the weekend gets its big boom from the middle class people who go out and uh, just want to spice up their their night. So, yeah. you know, every hundred quid they spend on cocaine goes straight back up into the hands of the big wholesalers in Dubai, like Daniel Kinahan. And as you, I've heard you say, you know, what do you do with these? Uh, these are ev- educated people, mm. you know, mm. um, with a lot of response, probably a lot of responsibilities in their day to day lives. And I mean, what, what, what can well, we do? you have to try and I don't know, make it shameful, maybe to use it because it's not at the moment. I mean, people are passing it around pubs. They're taking it on their hands and, you know, offering it openly um, that's a kind of like a product that has never had a marketing department behind a cocaine yet it's super cool mm. like it is the you know 
Yeah, they don't drink alcohol anymore as much teenagers and mm. stuff. It's yeah. okay. But it's the ultimate capitalist product. So I don't know how you try and connect with people to make them, you know, make the connection, draw the line between the violence and the, um, you know, the corruption and all those things that we don't want in society and try and make the connection between their hundred quid and where it's going because mm. it is funding all of that. Yeah. And, and and as you were saying earlier, just the, the fact that it's seeping into, so say, the legal system or pe- these people yeah. are kind of getting involved in it and then finding themselves co- actually caught up. Mm-hmm. Well, like if you look at the Netherlands, which is not really that massively different to us, except it is the supermarket of Amsterdam, it's a supermarket of drugs. But the Netherlands had a street gang that became actually became partners with Daniel Kinahan in his European super cartel. They're called the Dutch. They call them the Macro Mafia. They've brought them back. They're before the courts. They've dismantled them. They're a huge group, actually. There's still about 200 on the streets. Um, big familial group. But they have the head of that group, Rido Intagi, who's before the courts at the moment. Um, he has is suspected of having literally gone to war with the state of the Netherlands in the same way maybe Pablo Escobar did in Colombia many years previous. And there's been a journalist murdered. There's been a uh, brother of a state witness. There's been a lawyer. <coughs> Excuse me. The prime minister has been threatened, has been under 24 hour security. The royal family have been threatened and various princesses and stuff can't go to college. So they're under house arrest because this guy wants to kill them. Oh, my God. And yeah. there's been escape attempts. There's been you name it. Uh, and he's proved his capabilities. 20 years ago, he was dealing drugs on the street corner. And it's the money that he has that has allowed him to become that powerful and dangerous. Could you, s- I mean, we have, we've seen some very dangerous criminals here as well. Mm. But I want, I mean, could, could that kind of thing, could it get into that scale here? For sure. Yeah. I just think that it's only, you know, w- you know, we could have been the Netherlands. It could have happened anywhere in the same way as that Draha de Feud could have happened in any town. So we just have to be aware of that, that that's what we're facing. Mm. Uh, we're potentially facing. I mean, the Kinahan, the three heads of the Kinahan organisation are still in Dubai, but they're likely to be brought back before the courts here in Ireland. What will the prison system look like then to have them back in the country? Um, You know, I think that'll be a big challenge as well because people can obviously do things from behind bars. Mm. Yeah. You know, and when they're, when you look at Taggy in the Netherlands, it's when he's trapped, cornered, He's only gone one way, which is to jail for the rest of his life. That's when they become most dangerous, really. Mm. So, um, what, what, how would that feel to you? I mean, would it be ultimately most satisfying, obviously, to to get them back in and behind bars? I mean, obviously, does it sort of obviously a bit open ended for you? Obviously, it's a case you've been um, covering. For a I've long been time. covering it. I don't take it personally, so it's not a kind of like I'm not, you know, ambitious to see them. I think the dismantling of the organisation has been hugely interesting. It's been dismantled here. Because we can police in our own territory. We obviously can't police in the United mm-hmm. Arab Emirates. But it's the coming together of all the police forces as a blueprint really going forward in the fu- future that I find interesting. So it'll be interesting to see where they do end up mm. and, you know, what will happen if they're brought back here. None of these people who find their faces on wanted posters with the US Treasury find themselves sanctioned to ever survive mm-hmm. it. Like, you know, yeah. and then they kind of like disappear you know Chapo Guzman 
Do you hear much about him? You don't because he's 23 hours in lockup a day or more in the States. But, you know, the head of the Sinaloa cartel is taken down, hunted out for seven years until they get him. They all end up mm. behind bars if they're not killed. But um, it'll be another chapter in the story, really. Yeah. And so you mentioned there you don't take it personally. I wonder if that's one of the qualities of many that you've needed to have for this job. It wouldn't be for everyone. Yeah. Um, and just, I suppose, going back a bit to um, how you did sort of find yourself on this path. And, you know, we were wondering, you know, maybe as a, as a youngster when you were a child, were, were there signs then of, the, of an interest in stories and inquisitiveness? Um, but also, uh, I guess, you've got to be ballsy to, to go into the career that you have. What, what were we... Well, I sort of didn't totally plan it, to be honest with you. You know, you start off in journalism, you'll take whatever job there is. So I was doing shifts, news shifts. I was doing all sorts of stuff. And then I was doing news shifts on the Mirror here in Dublin. So we were just on the big stories of the day. So I was sent on the, it was after Veronica Guerin had been killed and the Gilligan gang had been brought back. They were before the courts. They were the first non-paramilitary group, um, first drug gang before the special criminal court. So it was quite exciting. So I covered that and then it just sort of kept going. But I certainly didn't have, I wasn't as a child thinking I want to be a crime journalist. I definitely didn't have that, you know, clear no vision. There family in no. kind of that kind of... No, didn't have that clear vision at all. I did want to be a journalist, but um, anyway, and again, you sort of get to where you get to without much planning. It's never been particularly thought out, you know. What were you like as a kid? Were you, um, I suppose, as Caroline says, you probably, were you a bit ballsy? Were you kind of... Not Where did you come in the family? Were you? There was only two. I yeah. don't. I was younger. I don't think I was particularly ballsy. I was sort of sporty, and um, uh, I, I don't really know what. I mean, I would have been encouraged to be educated and all the rest of that, and we didn't. We didn't want for much, but um, I think my eyes sort of opened as I began working as a journalist because all of a sudden you see how privileged you are. You know, you're going, especially in crime, you're going into sort of areas that are just, um, even to my own family, would be alien to them now. Like my kids, I like to show them stuff that they mightn't see where they live. But um, it's an education, like yeah. in in why really, I suppose as I've got older and the longer I have been in the job, I'm not interested in the headlines anymore, the quick stories. I'm much more interested in why the people are where they are, mm. why they're doing what they're doing, um, how they got into it. You know, why a 20-year-old is standing in the dock having killed somebody. How did that happen? So those kind of things are what intrigue me now. And maybe that it was developing that interest that sort of I kept in it. I, I <laughs> I was never offered a shift on the fashion pages, so. <laughs> that was a sliding door moment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. Well, you've got great style, <laughs> so you could have done. But yeah. I, I've, I've heard you say your your parents, you know, your dad did instill in you a sort of a good sense of, of justice. And it, that's yeah. something I do feel that comes through in, in your work. I think he was certainly somebody who was very fairy, so everyone is equal. And... Um, yeah, he definitely saw everyone as equal and he was very black and white in what's right and wrong. And maybe I'm a little bit like that myself, although I think more and more 
with my work, I'm seeing a lot of the grey matter in between and kind of, you know, delving into that. And Well, I think what we, we feel makes you really stand out is it seems you have this ability to, you could be talking to the, the, the worst, the, the, the most dangerous criminals. You could be talking to um, an addiction counsellor. You could be talking to a mother who's lost a son, who's mm. been shot dead. And you've got a way to deal with all of them, it seems to us. And that perhaps is in your nature. I don't know if you've had to sort of learn ways to do that. Maybe you do learn, you see, as in journalism. And, you know, that's something that older journalists talk about now with the younger ones. that Are, have the, are they getting the communication skills they need? Because you do need that. And maybe that comes with experience, just learning how to deal with people. And I always think if you're nice to people, that's probably the best start of all, no matter who they are. If you just maybe smile and say hello to them, it's a great start. Does it you work know? with the Kinnons? <laughs> oh, yeah, it, mor- it works mostly with um, with anybody, yeah. I mean, I would talk to fairly high-up criminals all mm. the time. They're actually kind of mostly okay. You know, okay, listen, hang on, some of them are murderous psychopaths out there. There are, of course, you have to be that way. But some of the kind of uh, criminals have been a long time in the game went into it because they were hungry. They were poor. They started crime beca- to feed themselves. And then they just got sucked in and stuck in. Um, but fundamentally, they're not that bad a person. Now, then, of course, you have the likes of the Kinnahan organization and others who have no regard for life, a greed, an insatiable greed. And I wouldn't be saying they were mm. nice necessarily. But... The underworld is a little bit like the normal world. You find good and bad in it. I suppose the other side of it is, you know, it is it's it's it is huge entertainment. I mean, mm. I was looking at the top podcasts in the world in the top ten. There's there's several crime podcasts. Yeah. we we I I really love them, and I suppose I mean I wonder what 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 is our, it? our fascination with yeah. it. Well, like it's a bit glamorous crime. I mean, it always has been. You know, since the beginning of the movies, we aren't really making movies about accountants. <laughs> you know, we're not really that interested in them, are we? Yeah, I know Something they can be suits, fascinating. I mean, I often drive <laughs> up to Wicklow, Wicklow, and I'm four hours hooked, and even in the hotel car park, going, "I'm gonna finish this," yeah. and then I can't sleep that night because I'm after listening to the biggest serial killers of Ireland. Well, <laughs> it is a crazy, edgy world, and you know some of that true crime stuff and the murders and the, yeah. the mysteries and all that. I mean, they are quite intriguing, horrifying but intriguing. But yeah, I mean, it is. Um, I don't know if glamorous is the right word for it. People always say, oh, do you glamorize it? And I don't believe I glamorize it anyway. I don't see anything glamorous about it. But, you know, the likes of the movie, the interest in the true crime, you know, Netflix, I just, I'd say if anybody saw my Netflix and what it's suggesting for me, they would think this one's going to actually end up joining a gang or something. You know, I watch Top Boy, I watch everything. Netflix and Sky and all these series and you wouldn't want to just I don't know immerse yourself in something else just to take your mind off yeah I do other stuff as well like I mean I would I would watch lighter stuff as well but I do find those crime dramas Mm. really good I really you know like The Wire and all those I think they're fantastic Mm. brilliantly made great storylines through them and that sort of stuff and as I say I'm not that drawn to 
you know, accountants or HR departments. Or, <laughs> or the Kardashians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've a bit of that going on, actually, as well. There's a little bit of the... Oh, yeah. The t- home at the Furies and all. I watch a little bit of that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. But, but it, I was interested that... I think women are twice as likely to listen to a crime podcast. And it's interesting that more mm. along the lines of the ones... Oh, a lot of the time, women are the victims. So I thought that's quite an interesting... It's like the psychology behind that, you know, whether it's because we were talking to a guest yesterday on a completely different topic, but she was saying about stories, women like stories, you know, men might prefer to see how how you get most successful and be a CIO, but we can, we can, we like stories and we can empathize, I suppose, with victims. It's exactly the same in the crime end of it because women like a mystery. Yeah. They like the story, the the unsolved, maybe the whole thing that sort of end of crime the men do like the gangland you know they know the guy was murdered they know it's probably over money but they want to know what's in the background how is that built up how do they become so wealthy how do they and having said that crime world which is my podcast which is largely organized crime although there is other bits in it is very 50 50 50 percent men 50 percent women there's maybe 50 okay it's maybe 58 percent men or something like that as in your listeners? Yeah. Mm. 42% okay. women. Mm. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I definitely think, I did CrimeCon there a couple of years ago, which is most bizarre American thing, which is like comedy con, except it's crime con. So you can go along, you can buy a serial killer, funny serial killer t-shirt. You can go into a crime scene room and get your photograph taken in a, Jesus. <laughs> Draw, I think. Anyway, they had podcast alley, so we went and. And went speaking on of that. serial killer, mm. could we ask you about Larry Murphy? What do you. I know you did something on him a few. Well, I actually. There was a documentary made. I actually only launched it. I, did, I wasn't yeah. in it. But. Uh, and I did a podcast with Geraldine Nyland, who's one of the journalists who has worked a lot on it. I mean, look, he is suspected in a number of those, but there's no bodies found. And he's very confidently still free um people believe he has to be a danger and yet he has done nothing the police know of or suspect of in, in the uk since he's been living there he's in a relationship although he's a convicted rapist so he's a complex character but so what would be your thoughts i mean i just suppose if i mean not so much i suppose on what you're working because it's more the organized crime but just this idea it, that that it, it is becoming too much entertainment or that we might sort of fictionalize victims a little bit and glamorize the, the perpetrators How, what do you feel about that well i don't know i mean it it is where it is i mean it is you know i'm bringing this thing to the stage which is i never could have expected bringing organized crime to the stage and I suppose that is entertainment. But at the same time, for me, it's, I mean, I will pour over writing this show. I will absolutely, you know, roll around in the bed for months <laughs> at night, worried about, have I that right? Have I this right? And it's sort of, I want to tell a story, but I also do want to entertain. And there is room sometimes for making a little joke or lightening the mood, sometimes darkening the mood, whatever. But it's 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 a kind of a skill nearly to try and do that without offending, because you never want to offend victims or families of people who've been affected by crime. Um, and yet, you know, it's a long time to have people sitting mm-hmm. in this in it. So we actually break it into two halves. I do the first one on my own, which is a story. 
um, which would be, you know, an audio visual mm. as well, story um, of whatever this topic is, Cocaine Cowboys this time. And the second half is a sort of more lighthearted podcast chat with Niall, who's my co-host on the on the crime world. Um, and we try and find a few little amusing anecdotes to lighten the mood mm. because people have to go home sort of not feeling too dark, but maybe feeling they've learned something. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go. I think that sounds brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and do you, is, is it a bit of a balance for you, though? I mean, it's great to have a, a show coming up to reach more audiences, but I suppose you are getting a bigger profile through through being mm. so good at your job. But And you might not necessarily want to, I suppose, in the kind of the work that you do, you don't necessarily want a huge profile at the, at the same time. No. And again, had that been pre-planned, obviously it would have, but it just sort of happened and it is where it's at. The horse has bolted a little bit, but so you have to work with what you have and where you're at. So in a way, sometimes having a high profile, people do come to me a lot now and certain people do want to talk to me. And so um, that's interesting. Um, and also you can use it maybe to raise awareness but I mean, unfortunately, the days of me being able to sit in a coffee shop and watch a criminal doing his business and him not knowing who the <laughs> hell I am, they're gone. Your days of the undercover Those days. days are, are, you know, numbered. But um, yeah, I suppose it just means that you have more responsibility, a louder voice maybe on certain issues. Mm. And I suppose you get asked as well a lot about security and I suppose you must get asked this all the time. But do you ever get frightened? Like. Um, I mean, only if there was something to be, you know, if there was something about. very, very, you know, serious, which touch wood and thankfully there isn't um, at the moment. All crime journalists do get threats and they do. You'd, you have to deal with them. But we are very privileged because, um, you know, if anything serious comes up, you can be guaranteed you'll have the politicians standing in the door. You have the police at your front door. You have your corporate security etc and on a corporate level um we're well looked after i certainly am and i'm sure i'm speaking for other crime journalists so it's not the same as if you're out in a community and somebody comes to your door and says your son owes twenty thousand. if you don't pay that by next week i'm going to kill you and i'm going to kill your son so that's a proper victim of crime like we're not you know what i mean we we just have a lot of help mm. whenever anything goes awry and most things calm down as well hmm. you know but I do think that you know people in communities with with that level of threat that's fear mm. that's frightening yeah you've got that perspective I suppose because you you've been at the coalface of that yeah right, yeah that is really yeah. true mm. truly terrifying you know but does does this sort of a job it, 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 I imagine you kind of over the years have had to live eat breathe sleep it you know and does that affect your personal life? I mean, it has something, you know, that you, I guess, work must take over. Take over and it might, is, is it hard, you know, in terms of just your friendships and... Not really, no. I mean, it's just a job in the end of the day. I mean, maybe on the outside it looks like something more than that. Um, but it's not. It's a job and it pays the bills and the mortgage. And I have a whole other life outside of my job, like most people. And... Um, you know, I do all sorts of things. I travel, I socialise, I have family, I do all those things that normal people do as well. I think it just maybe looks from I the outside. I, I don't know. 
but what it looks like. It's sometimes people ask me questions and I'm going, what? Is that what it's like? Is that what it, lo- is, that what it is like? Is that what it looks like? It's just... Well, I suppose it's... I wonder, would you have to compartmentalise a bit? Because the sort of job, things that... The, the big things that could be happening that might play on your mind, it'd be hard not to bring home, perhaps. Um... They've started like there's a, there's a, like there's offers of counselling and all this. To me, that is completely mental. Like, <laughs> what would you need counselling to do your job? And that might sound strange. I remember after the um, the Graham Dwyer trial. Remember him, the architect oh God, who murdered yeah, his. Yeah, he was. He a freak. was one of the. Yeah, that was one of the podcasts I listened to. Yeah, but I mean, I didn't turn it off. No, but he was yeah. a total. For, so I cover oh that trial, God. and um, you know he's there, right? And he's in the oh. dock. He's in custody, and you've been in courtrooms. I'm sure they're not a dangerous place yeah, to yeah. be in at all. So in the aftermath of that trial, a lot of journalists were offered counselling for that, and I was like, for what? I don't understand that. Why would you be offered counselling for covering a trial? And on top of it, he wasn't even scary, Graham Dwyer, to me. He was somebody who was only frightening to vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable victims. I mean, he was probably a coward underneath it all. But um, I think maybe you need a little bit of coping mechanism to do the job and not running to, you know what I mean? If, if, you, yeah. if you seriously, if you need to... If it's going to keep you awake at if night, you've got if a problem. You're if you're going to have issues having covered a court case, you I don't think you shouldn't be in the job. Yeah, but maybe I'm kind of nearly old-fashioned now or something, you know. Yeah, perfectly open yeah. to that. If you're thinking of changing your car, then check out Kerry Motorworks, one of Munster's largest dealerships selling used and new vehicles, at www.kerrymotorworks.ie. And thank you to Kerry Motorworks for sponsoring the podcast. You're cool well. as a breeze, you are, Nicola. What, 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 why? Yeah, I actually I mean, was saying yeah. to Caroline, you probably arrive up in a motorbike. You have this kind <laughs> of coolness about you. And actually, I was talking to my husband, Niall, about you last night, and he said, she has this kind of, you're likable to men as well. And he was kind of saying, because I've told you this, that he's, he's obsessed with your podcast and, and your book, and um, that you kind of get away with it because of your personality with these the Kinnens and all these because you you're a bit of a rogue yourself or you, you maybe can I don't know. you can have the crack <laughs> yeah. maybe you don't take yourself too seriously no I definitely don't and what you see is is what you get yeah really. no, I definitely don't take myself too seriously anyway um, I think a lot of this sort of stuff is almost I mean I can't totally understand why anybody's interested in I can understand why other people are interested in crime and all the rest of that I've no idea why anybody's interested in me because I'm not very interesting I'm really not. I have nothing. I have no big story in the background. I'm just an ordinary person doing a job that the contents of the job are interesting. But yeah, so that's all a bit. And I think, you know, like other journalists, you signed up to be a journalist. You didn't sort of ever. The job has changed so much that all of a sudden you have to give your personality into it. You have to give a bit of yourself into it. And it's like, I'm like, anybody listening to this, let's talk about the crime stuff. Do you feel you can be vulnerable? Um, as a, like in, in private. Is it, it? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We all are. I mean, you couldn't say, I mean, a human being wouldn't be human without being vulnerable and feeling vulnerable in situations. But like certainly as regards the job and maybe I do compartmentalize and maybe I do do that. I don't know. But um, 
that's the last thing you ever want to show weakness or vulnerability because in the criminal underworld people are always looking for that and you have to be very careful not to show that mm-hmm. so and actually following on set as Sarah said there that that I suppose that likability across the piece men women you know you've I, I wonder what it was it like coming up as a journalist I imagine it was more male dominated at that time I don't know but certainly yeah. the crime world's male yeah, dominated it, it pe- is it though I'm on. wondering because but now I that before yeah this definitely is a male dominated journalism is definitely male dominated sort of a but I've always had loads of really good male friends so I don't really it's only when someone else points that out to me that I kind of go, yeah, actually, there's all men in the room. Yeah, but okay. there actually are quite a few female crime journalists. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the Zally Bracken and the Sunday Independent. There's Nicola Donnelly who works for the Mirror. Um, I'm. I'm sure I've forgotten other names there. Just to m- have to put myself on the spot with that, but there are. So you didn't ever look feel when you started out that sometimes you wouldn't be given a story because you didn't have to sort of feel that sense of. I never felt that. No. no, I never felt that. I never felt that um, it got in the way being a female. It probably helped a bit sometimes, you know, mm. in that male-dominated mm. world of crime. It probably helped a little bit, you know, sometimes in some situations I've been in, it has maybe helped being a female going into it rather than a male because they do get more violence, men, don't they, from other men. A lot of men aren't, um, you know, naturally drawn to being violent to females in certain situations. Um, I mean, all my male colleagues have actually had a good few punches thrown at them during the course of their careers and I never have. <laughs> you're just smarter than them. <laughs> maybe so, yeah. <laughs> or maybe I'm better at staying in the background yeah. a bit, you know, getting in behind someone else. But it, have you had threats and stuff? Did you, ha- you must have had threats along the way with what you're... Well, yeah, I mean, you see, I would see them as people threaten you all the time, like on social media, these people with no faces. Not so you get a lot of that, right? And you get a lot of people sending in emails, which is really nonsensical, sending in an email threat. Um, then you get people might shout at you a little bit on the street or all of them. Usually if you go back and look at them, they nearly die and run away. The only threats that I would think are ones for journalists to take seriously, seriously, would be ones that come in on intel. So that. Obviously, if somebody wants to do something to you, it's not a great idea to tell you they're going to do it, you know, or to sort of either speak that or put it on an email in particular. It's particularly stupid on their own email. Whereas if the police pick that up on intel and it's proper intel, then that's and they come to you to suggest that there's a bit of a problem in the background. That's to be taken seriously. There's no question about it. But the rest of it, I mean, look, female journalists are getting annihilated across all the mediums but on social media and it's just the way it is and actually the guards in this country have set up a special um, you know like a forum and are encouraging female journalists to come forward about threats to them mm. because yeah it's just your game for anything I mean, but I think to be honest with you female guards get that as well Oh, I'm sure they do, yeah. Can't you imagine the kind of things that are said to them and shouted at them? And it's always about your physical, your looks. Mm, Yeah. Men don't get that now. Men might get a punch, but they don't get called out on whatever. 
they decide they want to and names and stuff like that and I definitely think female guards would get that a lot and probably solicitors mm. oh, I'm sure in and probably groups, nurses yeah, in A&E and e units and probably all those kind of jobs that you're coming up close and personal maybe with a volatile member of the public so mm. yeah and sometimes I guess you might have to walk into the threat I mean I know you have had to approach um, be they killers or, or drug lords or whatever and you, you might have said did You've done this, or I, was it? There was a story I heard you telling about going into Germany. Was it George, George Mitchell, oh, yeah. the penguin? Yeah, and that uh, you I love managed the names, to track the him down. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. Run, run to, I mean, I I don't even like going up to someone and asking for directions. I can't imagine approaching a, a criminal. Yeah. But what's that like? Yeah, well, he was actually trying to get away from me then <laughs> because that was on a public street, and I think he was totally horrified. But yeah, no, he uh, didn't really know what was going on at first. I think he heard the Irish accent and then he looked and he saw under my baseball cap and he just sent fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) And he waddled off because he does waddle. But um, it's exciting Mm. to track somebody down who's been missing for, you know, for the media for 20 years to actually physically see them, to stalk them, because that's what we did for days on end to work out the best place to approach him and everything. And for that to come good, you know, to be bringing back the bacon that kind of a big name and tracked yeah. him down, got him, got you sort of thing. It doesn't happen very often, but it is a bit of a buzz to mm. get somebody like that. So actually, you tracked him down. He was then, was he arrested then? He actually, what happened to him was, because he was in Germany with this business partner, his who had an underground bunker, of all things, a NATO underground bunker in this hillside place. He'd bought it from the local council. There's loads of these mm. underground bunkers around Europe. I never knew that. It's few in Ireland, did you know that? No. Massive, big real estate, underground, completely soundproof, everything. Anyway, these pals of Georgie were running a sort of dark net server in it. The people didn't know. I rattled out to Germany. I knew he was sort of investing in something a bit tricky and that he was he was there. I was quite happy just to get him, did the story. Mm. And then in the background, the police went, what the hell is going on here? So they started properly looking at there's actually a documentary on Netflix called Cyberbunker at the moment about the whole story. And it culminated and because of George Mitchell's presence in that town in 600 police raiding the underground bunker some years later, they had a big undercover operation. They tapped the phones and they shut down a load of, you know, dark net activity, which is everything from child porn to oh my drug God. sales to yeah. yeah, facilitating all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I sort of almost sort of <laughs> slightly dizzy walked out, not realizing the big story <laughs> under the ground here. <laughs> and yet I set yeah. off a kind of a, I left a little <laughs> hand grenade behind uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> Delighted with myself that I had the photograph of Georgie Mitchell. Jeez, so yeah. there's people in jail now and everything. Yeah, it sounds like it, it, it sounds like an exciting career yeah. in one way. I suppose you're. You're leading a lot of it. I mean, and the fact that you're going on this road show and everything, mm. it is. It's great for you, is it? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely. Yeah. And as long as I enjoy it, I'll keep doing it. Well, I love that. I think that. Um, I mean, obviously, that to journalists, you have to be sort of there is there for being objective. Mm. But I do say there's with you there is this sense of sort of, of of justice and thinking about what's 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 led to this mm. and I must just touch on the witness because I just thought that was fantastic I, it's the first podcast I've binged kind of listened it yeah. was, um, 
it really was fantastic congratulations on that but again it it, it made me I was struck when I heard you saying that it's it's Joey, isn't it? The, yeah. The, the, who it's his story that he was playing on your mind ahead of of, of writing the book and creating. Definitely, the like and you know, we'd known each other. We've known each other for years, myself and Joey. But uh, it had to be the right time for him to do the book, and then the podcast had to be the right time for him. And you know, there's other projects still going on. Joey will be probably part of my life until the day I die, uh, and I his we. There's very few people really out of it that you kind of build a proper friendship with. But Joey's one of those people. Look, at he was, you know, a kid that was spat out of Ballymun into the arms of a drug gang. He was groomed into criminality and he ended up going witness protection and, and giving evidence against two gangland killers because his moral code wouldn't allow him to turn around. Uh and look the other way. So he brought the police. He did the ultimate sin within his community, which was ratting. And he suffered for that. And despite the fact that he, you know, gave evidence against horrendous people, he was shunned and all the rest of it from his community. And actually telling a story made things better for him because people understood exactly what had gone on and what had happened, you know. And in a way, I, that's exactly what I like doing. And again, it's probably just a maturity in me now. I like finding, you know, those sort of stories, those sort of people who you've written off. But actually, it gives us a really good understanding, doesn't it? I think the witness of why a guy is there. And the writer Dermot Bulger always said about Ballymun, 15 stories high and a million stories deep. Mm. Which is exactly, for me, what Ballymun is, was, probably still is. Everybody has a reason for being where they are, you know. And being an addict or being the person shoving the drugs out through the uh, the letterbox. Yeah. I mean, I've heard you refer to some of these young kids, partic particularly, but this is probably more boys, is it, that they're stolen lives. Mm. And this is such an eye-opener of how these young children can can get caught up into this totally and as you s said you step back and it's a bigger bigger picture for society and what we really should be doing it is yeah, it's very sad definitely it? it is a bigger picture for society and not just for the community workers within that area but brings us back maybe to that to those middle class users you know you Where's don't get to turn a blind eye on that because you're part of that yeah yeah, no. I wouldn't have even thought of that. Mm. Yeah, and just um, y you touched on it earlier a bit about journalists. We're thinking if, if there's anyone listening, an um, up and coming journalist interested in the career, any any advice? I mean, I think we've already said you might not want to go into the crime side of things. If well, yeah, it's look, it is a roller coaster. It's a fantastic career, and you travel the world, and you can see, and meet people. You can meet presidents and homeless people and you get to you get to see such a cross section of society it can bring you anywhere so it is an amazing job so if anyone wants to go into it go into it but try and avoid the crime bit you know <laughs> maybe although you know you can cope, cope in that courtroom <laughs> yeah not everybody can cope with that you know work out I suppose what you can cope with and I think most important advice is work on those communication skills stop emailing somebody that's sitting opposite you in an oh, office yeah, yeah personality yeah. is yeah. big yeah I'm Big thinking a bit about legacy. I don't know if you've thought about this, but what what you what sort of would you like your legacy to be in the in, in your career? Don't know. 
No idea. I like, I mean, you'd like to leave behind decent work, wouldn't you? Rather than stuff that will be forgotten. I suppose th- I hate writing books, but I suppose at least they've a better, they've a better longevity than, <laughs> you know, a, a piece on the internet or mm-hmm. a, a story in a newspaper, which will be wrapping chips the next day. So something, you know, a body of work I think I'd like to leave that maybe will be a social history one day, won't it? Yeah. I, so yeah, I th- I, you're already achieving yeah, that. Yeah, it won't it's be And any making more than change, because I think it does, you know, you've kind of take, taken the time to tell a story like Joe's, to focus, n- it's not just the big story, mm. but it's it's all the, 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 the moving parts, the characters underneath and shining a light on that. So. Yeah, to try and, I suppose, let us all see what it's like rather than just it's brushing it brushing the underworld aside as a sort of oh that's just nothing yeah. you know that's just full of criminals or what are criminals like is another thing I go, well, what are human beings like because they're all different you know yeah. yeah yeah as are victims victims are all different too and as you said with this book you know this cocaine is just the one part of it but this this is a massive issue for all of us we've kids that begin growing up going into pubs and mm. it'll be there and mm. it's going to touch it's touch touch all our lives and we we have to be you know open our eyes to it so. yeah yeah well thanks so much for your time it's you're very fantastic. welcome oh, thanks so much Thank at, last. At, <laughs> at last at last <laughs> at last yeah